the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Us being James Blend, who is producing today's program, Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice. I'd like to thank him for the use of his office for the sake of the cause, which, by the way, will come to a close July 9th. James and I will be back in studio at KPDQ. I'm not quite sure I'm prepared for that, but I'm working my way toward it. I mean, I've done that for 30 plus years. I can probably pull it off, but it'll take some adjustments. Well, taking a look at uh, some of the day's headlines. Well, in fact, we'll do that in a minute. I do want to let you know that we'll be talking with co-authors Dan Britton and Ron Forseth. They are the authors of The Wisdom Challenge, Experience the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. The book is published by Broad Street Publishing. It's a devotional and it's um. Kind of a faux leather bound book that fits easily in your hand and is a great uh, gift idea if you're looking for something uh, to give uh, with the subject of wisdom. Anyway, they'll be joining us in the five o'clock hour. So look forward to that conversation. Well, I don't need to tell you, but Portland reached 112 degrees on Sunday afternoon. And I need to pause for a moment just to catch my breath. That's according to the National Weather Service. That's setting a new all-time record high for the city of Portland, the city of roses that were all scorched. It also broke the city's all-time June record of 102 degrees. The previous all-time high record was 108 degrees. That was reached on Saturday evening. But before this weekend, the record was 107 degrees. The Portland International Airport reached 107 degrees once in July in 1965 and twice in August of 1981. That record could be broken again on Sunday with a high of 110 in the forecast. Now, James, I'm going to tell you that I can hear you in my headphones. I'm not sure anyone else can, so just a heads up. Well, the National Weather Service has issued an excessive heat warning for most inland areas. Saturday, Sunday, Monday, uh, Monday was the case. Parts of eastern Oregon will be under that heat warning starting Monday through Friday for next week. And the weekend could kick off the worst heat wave since 2009 with the possibility of 11 straight days of temperatures reaching above 90 degrees. The Oregon coast will see cooler temperatures um, with highs in the 70s and 80s along the north coast. Government camp near Mount Hood with highs in the 90s throughout the weekend. And several cooling centers will be open through the weekend in uh, Oregon and Washington. That's due to the extreme weather. Uh, KGW created a list of places where people can escape the heat. You can call 211 to learn more. I appreciate that uh, community resource provided by KGW. Uh, television. On Friday, the Oregon Health Authority suspended COVID-19 capacity limits on swimming pools, movie theaters, and shopping malls to allow more people to stay cool during the heat wave. And Multnomah County has shared several ways to keep children safe in the heat as well if you're struggling with some ideas. Well, unprecedented, that's the word that's being applied here, record-shattering heat. It hangs on across the Northwest today with temperatures once again surpassing the century mark. Daily, monthly, all-time records will be set with today's highs likely going down in history as the hottest day ever 
recorded for Seattle and Portland. Temperatures won't be as hot tomorrow, but things won't cool off significantly either. The Northeast and uh, New England are also expecting some pretty hot, humid weather this week, with temperatures in the lows to mid-90s. Well, heat advisories are up where combined uh, and uh, combined heat and humidity will make things feel very uncomfortable. Uh, heavy rain and flooding will continue along a stalled front that stretches from Texas to the Great Lakes, while tropical showers and thunderstorms will threaten the Gulf Coast states. An area of low pressure off the southeast will be monitored for possible development before moving onshore tonight, bringing a potential for heavy rain and some thunderstorms over Georgia and South Carolina. So we're not alone in our, our hot weather. Hurricane Enrique is the first hurricane of 2021. Uh, of the uh, Pacific tropical season. It will likely stretch a bit more before weakening later this week. The system will impact Baja California midweek. So I guess you can say we're all in this together in one way or another. Well, to say it's hot in the northwestern United States and western Canada is an understatement. For the second state straight day, rather, temperatures soared to unheard of levels for this part of the world on Sunday. And AccuWeather meteorologists say the summer sizzle hasn't even reached its peak. What? AccuWeather's team of experts, uh, forecasters, were describing the then-upcoming heat wave as unprecedented, life-threatening, and historic as early as the middle of last week, and these descriptions have been accurate in the first days of the national scorcher. Well, the weekend marked the beginning of the extended stretch of extreme temperatures here in Portland, a city that typically experiences temperatures in the mid to upper 70s in late June, soared to a staggering 112 degrees Fahrenheit on Sunday. And again, that broke the all-time record high of 108, set just a day before. Well, prior to the current heat wave, the highest temperatures ever recorded in the city, 107, set once in July in 1965 and twice in August in 81. Portland's also expected to obliterate its daily record high of 100 on Monday and possibly uh, set an all-time high temperature record for the third straight day. AccuWeather is predicting a high of 113 today, which would make it the hottest day ever recorded in the city of Portland. Well, the highest temperatures ever recorded in the state of Oregon is 117, which was set in Umatilla on the 27th of July in 1939. Temperatures of 110 or greater are virtually unheard of on the west of the Cascades, AccuWeather's senior meteorologist Randy Atkins pointed out. Wow, it uh, it has really been Something. Well, the U.S. Olympic track and field trials were briefly suspended on Sunday. I can't believe they even held them because of extreme heat in Oregon. Temperatures soared to about 108 degrees on the course and caused at least one competitor to withdraw and some fans to be evacuated. Now, again, you're talking about uh, triple digit temperatures. You've got athletes on the field, which is always hotter than it is in the stands and virtually anywhere else. Uh, The trials were shut down at about 3.40 p.m., Um, That was Eastern time with six events remaining and resumed at 830 p.m. Eastern time. The forecast high for Sunday at Hayward Field was 111 degrees, but only three long distance races were moved from the afternoon to the morning because of the heat. While an heptathlete, um, Talia Brooks, she withdrew from the competition. She was set to throw the javelin to start the evening session, but was carted off the field in a wheelchair earlier in the day. She reportedly came back to the track hoping to compete, but was advised against it. The Pacific Northwest was hit with record-setting heat over the weekend, and that included the Olympic trials in Eugene. Temperatures in Oregon are still expected to be in the 90s through the rest of the week, and I'm hoping that um, Talia, who spent a lifetime preparing to compete in the Olympic Games, 
will be given an opportunity along with other competitors uh, to vie for a spot on the U.S. Olympic team, um, given the temperatures and the fact that she had to withdraw for that reason alone. Well, as I mentioned, one more day of record heat, then some relief for us. Uh, KGW once again reports that we're living through an unprecedented heat wave that keeps outdoing itself, uh, and that will continue. Today, there's a very good chance we'll top uh, that record of, uh, of 112 with 113 degrees this afternoon. Cooler air with uh, onshore wind is trying to push through the coast range today, and that cool push will enter the southern Willamette Valley this afternoon. A wind shift to the south or southwest will mark the end of the extreme heat west of the Cascades. With that, temperatures will drop substantially tonight. Yay, tonight. I might get some sleep. And will likely fall into the upper 60s by Tuesday morning. Remember the upper 60s? I have such fond memories. Well, the week ahead will still be warm, but not absurdly hot, will be around 95 degrees on Tuesday, then top out the uh, upper 80s for midweek. The clear weather continues July the 4th weekend with highs in the low 90s, so it should be fairly comfortable after we've lived through these uh, triple digits. There's no rain on the horizon, but cooler weather should return next week. So be encouraged if you're struggling. Well, from Sunday evening through Tuesday evening, Oregonians are allowed to pump their own gas. That's the Oregon State Fire Marshal announcement on Sunday that its official is uh, their office rather is suspending regulations that prohibit Oregonians from pumping their own gasoline at service stations. The governor's office approved the suspension of regulations. Well, the Oregon State Fire Marshal said the suspension is due to the current and forecasted heat in the state. The suspension will remain in place for 48 hours until the evening of Tuesday, the 29th. The Oregon State Fire Marshal said the suspension does not affect areas of the state or time frames that are already authorized for self-service refueling under Oregon's new law. The Oregon State Fire Marshal has more information on temporary suspension on its website. I'm not sure what the advantage is of pumping your own gas, but perhaps it saves those who would typically do that in an eight-hour day period uh, from being um, exposed to heat exhaustion. So something to keep in line. In mind, rather. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A few more closures when we come back, and we'll take a look at headline news as well. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Monday edition of The Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing. Later in the next hour, we'll hear from Dan Britton and Ron Forseth. They're the co-authors of The Wisdom Challenge, Experience the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. If you ever wanted to dig into Proverbs in a systematic way, this might be the resource for you or someone you care about. Well, we're talking about the uh, excessive, unprecedented heat in the Portland metro area, and that word actually applies this time around. Well, the historic heat wave hitting the Pacific Northwest has caused businesses and max lines to shut down until the heat passes. I know that inconveniences a lot of people, but due to record-breaking heat sweeping the Pacific Northwest over the weekend and into the early part of this week, Many businesses are closed or are closing early. Uh, Some of the uh, names on that running list, as I mentioned, TriMet, they announced on Sunday that it will be suspending all max lines due to the heat concerns and the stress on the power grid until Tuesday. TriMet said in a release that several of its lines are experiencing technical issues due to the heat and the pause in service will give the system time to cool down. The max line will resume on Tuesday, and it suggested people make use of normal bus lines in the meantime. 
Also, Portland Public Schools and Portland Parks and Recreations uh, and Pools, I should say, announced that uh, its outdoor pools will be closed today, and that's to protect staff and guests from severe heat. Uh, they suggest Portlanders visit cooling centers or county libraries to avoid excessive heat. Uh, Portland uh, Parks and Recreation said it anticipate pools reopening to re- pre-registered guests on Tuesday, but said it's going to revisit operation schedules daily and won't reopen the outdoor pool until it's safe to do so. Portland Public School District, all Portland Public School buildings will be closed and are, uh, which include pausing programs like meal services, child care and summer enrichment programs. The Tiger-Tualatin School District uh, will be making bus stop uh, meals deliveries. That's going to come two hours early and will begin at 9.30 a.m. District um, Grab-and-go meals will continue as scheduled. However, all outdoor activities will be canceled. Gas station self-service, I've already mentioned, is another element. Well, the Oregon Zoo is in on the game. They're going to be closing uh, early today. I should say they did close early today. Various food trucks at the uh, Mercado are adjusting their hours for the heat. Some will remain closed, while others will have limited business hours. You can check them out online. And the list is growing as many places are facing heat that would overwhelm air conditioning systems and would likely keep people from wanting to venture out into the city anyway. Portland topped its all-time high temperature record of 108, uh, which was set on Saturday afternoon. On Sunday, Portland reached 112 according to the National Weather Service. And as I've said, uh, the expectation is 113 in the Portland metro area today. As of 5 p.m. last night, the Portland airport's new all-time record high temperature was 112. That broke yesterday's all-time record high temperature of 108. Um, uh, records began in 1940. Pre uh, Yesterday, the warmest temperatures on record were 107, set in July of 65, and twice in August of 1981. Pretty remarkable. Well, over the weekend, Governor Kate Brown uh, signed a recovery-focused executive order lifting all remaining COVID-19 health work we have done to bring us to this moment. Efforts underway to close our vaccine um, equity gap and reach every Oregonian with information and a vaccine have definitely helped bring us thus far. Thank you all uh, who are uh, going the extra mile to vaccinate fellow Oregonians. Well, the governor signed the executive order to, uh, on Friday, rather, in a press conference with Oregon Health Authority Director Patrick Allen, state epidemiologist Dr. Dean Seidlinger, and Oregon Department of Education Director Colt Gill. Well, the governor's recovery order rescinds Executive Order 2066. That's the successor of her original Stay Home, Save Lives order and subsequent Safe and Strong Oregon orders, which authorized Oregon's statewide mask mandate and the um, county risk level system, including restrictions on businesses and other sectors for physical distancing, capacity limits, closing times, and more. The recovery order also rescinds Executive Order 2022, non-urgent health care procedures, Executive Order 2106, K-12 schools, Executive Order 2028, Higher Education, and Executive Order 2019, Child Care Facilities. Well, with the repeal of the uh, set of executive orders that place COVID-19-related restrictions on all Oregonians, the recovery order extends the emergency declaration for the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. The governor's remaining emergency authority will be limited in focus to COVID-19 recovery efforts, similar to the recovery executive order currently in place for 2020 during the wildfire season. So as of Wednesday... Masks will not be required, with some exceptions, uh, federal guidelines. 
Uh, and um, depending on the retail outlet or the restaurant, they may require you to wear a mask, but that is not uh, under the governor's order. Uh, but they can and do have the authority to say, in this facility, you must wear a mask. Well, sine die, that is the cry that's heard in the Oregon legislature when it comes to an end, and that is what happened on Saturday. The Oregon legislature wrapped up on Saturday, marking the end of an eventful session that included high-profile legislation, a resignation, and the first expulsion of a lawmaker in state history. Well, the legislature wrapped up Saturday. It marked an end of an eventful session. The session began on the 21st of January after a two-day delay from concerns about possible attacks from extremists. Saw lawmakers take up bills addressing pandemic relief, wildfire relief, uh, police reform, racism, and a landmark energy bill. Uh, OPB reported in January that Governor Kate Brown said the challenging times we have faced in the past year have really created the legislative agenda. And that certainly is the case. Well, pandemic relief was top on the list by necessity. Lawmakers addressed pandemic relief during the special session in 2020. It was clear there was still much work to be done after the pandemic killed nearly 1,500 people last year and severely hampered the economy. Tens of thousands of Oregonians remained out of work and even more remained behind on rent and mortgage payments in 2021. Lawmakers extended eviction and foreclosure moratoriums for people struggling as a result of the pandemic, including an amendment to Senate Bill 278 that was passed on Tuesday that gave rent who have applied for assistance an additional 60 days after the June 30th deadline before possibly facing eviction. For renters who have not applied for assistance, the eviction moratorium ends uh, on the 30th. However, in May, the legislature passed rather a grace period that will remain in effect until February of 2022 for renters uh, to pay late rent accrued during the moratorium. Excuse me. Also in May, Lawmakers passed an extension of the foreclosure moratorium that allowed people to put their mortgage in forbearance through June. Brown uh, has since extended the foreclosure moratorium through September. Lawmakers also passed other bills designed to lessen the economic impacts of COVID-19, including Senate Bill 172 that allowed the Oregon Employment Department to waive repayment on unemployment claims paid in error. It was signed into law by the governor on Wednesday, further highlighting how much impactful uh, work came down to uh, the, the literal wire. The same day the governor signed Senate Bill 172 into law, lawmakers passed House Bill 3389, which allows some businesses to defer a portion of payroll taxes for the state's unemployment trust fund, which increased in 2021 and in some cases received forgiveness for a portion of that increase. House Bill 5006 was also passed on Saturday and awaits the governor's signature. The bill, funded largely by federal pandemic aid, will direct $4 million to each Oregon Senate district and a $2 million uh, to each House district. Senators and representatives will be tasked with deciding how the money is spent. They also wrestled with wildfire relief with police reform. A slew of police reform bills passed the Oregon legislature were sent to the governor's desk to be signed into law, while arguably the most significant reform awaits her signature. New patients only, no cash value, cannot be combined with any um, other um, medical uh, uh, charges was one of the issues addressed. Some laws were a, a direct response to uh, policing of radical justice protests throughout the state of Oregon. And they also addressed the subject of racism uh, from a standpoint that may have crossed the line into critical race theory application. Climate change, sexual harassment, and an historic expulsion were also part of the 2021 legislative session that is now drawn to a close. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Dan Britton and Ron Forseth will be my guests coming up in the five o'clock hour. They are the co-authors of the Wisdom Challenge, Experience the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. Stay with us for that second hour. Well, the United States military has launched airstrikes against three facilities on the Iraq-Syria border. Well, the U.S. military conducted defensive precision airstrikes against three facilities near the border uh, a region on Sunday evening. According to Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby, the facilities are used by several Iran-backed militia groups engaged in unmanned aerial uh, vehicle attacks against U.S. personnel and facilities in Iraq, including well, I won't even attempt to um, uh, pronounce the names, but KH and KSS. Well, as demonstrated by this evening's strikes, President Biden has been clear that he will act to protect U.S. personnel. Given the ongoing series of attacks by Iran-backed groups targeting U.S. interests in Iraq, the president directed further military action to disrupt and deter such attacks, Kirby added. The United States took necessary, appropriate, and deliberate action designed to limit the risk of escalation, but also to send a clear unambiguous deterrent message, end quote. Well, a U.S. defense official with knowledge of the strikes says that the U.S. Air Force F-15s and F-16s were used in the operation. The strikes took place at approximately 6 p.m. Eastern time or 1 a.m. local time. At least one facility uh, used by Iran's militia forces to launch and recover drones was destroyed. The official added recent strikes by the crewed drones have uh, targeted Americans in Baghdad and Erbil in northern Iraq. Well, in other developments, a Senate Democrat wants an explanation for the U.S. strikes near the Iraq-Syria border. I've just given you one. Uh, U.S. firepower in the Syria strike is revealed as officials brace for Iran's next move. And a deadly shooting in Massachusetts is being eyed as a possible hate crime. Massachusetts authorities investigating Saturday's deadly shooting in Winthrop said they have found evidence of the incident that it may have been a hate crime, the report said. The Boston Fox 25 reported that two people were fatally shot by Nathan Allen, a 28-year-old with no criminal history. Allen stole a truck, crashed it into a building, and then gunned down two black bystanders. He was eventually killed by a responding sergeant. Rachel Rollins, the Suffolk District attorney said the investigation is in its earliest stages, but anti-black and anti-Semitic writings were located and tied to Allen. She referred to the killings as executions and said witnesses pointed out that Allen passed other bystanders uh, by who were not of color. Well, this individual wrote about the superiority of the white race. She said in a statement about whites being apex predators, he drew swastikas. The report identified the two victims as David Green, 58, a retired state trooper, and Ramona Cooper, a 60-year-old Air Force veteran. They were both black. Authorities praised the quick-thinking sergeant who engaged the suspect, Terrence Delhaney, the uh, top cop in the town, called the officer heroic. The developers of the doomed Florida Tower were once accused of paying off officials. Well, Surfside's developers had contributed to the campaigns of at least two town council members, then demanded that the donations be returned when the allegations surfaced, according to the outlet. Meanwhile, the 12-story tower had been on the verge of undergoing $15 million in renovations to pass a required 40-year certification when it collapsed, killing at least nine people and leaving others uh, uh, seriously injured, some 150 unaccounted for 
as of uh, last week. All of the principals believed to have been involved in the design and construction of the building are already dead, the outlet said. The, the developers behind the project had included Nathan Ryber, a Polish-born Canadian who was also um, once charged with tax evasion and cited for legal misconduct in Canada, the report said. Meanwhile, ph- pharmaceutical company Johnson & Johnson has agreed to pay $230 million to New York State ahead of a trial pertaining to the opioid crisis set to begin on Tuesday. The Wall Street Journal reported the deal will keep Johnson & Johnson out of the trial in New York, which includes other makers of opioid prescription drugs, but will not remove the company from trials scheduled in other states. Most U.S. states and over 3,000 counties, cities, and local governments have filed suit against drug makers in the wake of the crisis including America Source Bergen, Cardinal Health Inc., and McKesson Corporation. States are seeking a combined $26 billion from those three companies, as well as Johnson & Johnson. In other developments, the death toll rises uh, to nine in the Miami condo collapse. A Surfside sister building is going to be probed by an army of engineers. A Florida family gets 16 calls from grandparents who remain unaccounted for in the condo collapse. Just the thought behind that is is too overwhelming to contemplate. A building inspector was on the roof of the Florida condo hours before it collapsed. Well, China's cyber power has been exaggerated. It is apparently at least decades behind the U.S., according to a new study. And med students rescue a passenger mid-flight during a medical emergency. Thanks, med students. Well, during COVID-19, most Americans got richer, especially the rich. And Americans are leaving unemployment rolls more quickly in states that are cutting off benefits. Huh, you do the math, that makes sense. Walter Isaacson is in preliminary talks with Elon Musk to write his biography. Well, the U.S. strike of facilities near the Iraq-Syria border, according to the Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby, were on facilities used by several Iran-backed military groups. And the squad has put targets on the backs of Manchin and Sinema. They pushed the leadership of the Democrat Party around, and now they plan to do the same with moderates. Well, a migrant has uh, been sentenced to 142 years in prison after reportedly saving 31 people at sea. And this took place in Greece, where they are cracking down on illegal immigration with long prison sentences. But in the case of Hanad Abdi Mohammed, the smuggler abandoned them and he was forced to take over. Apparently, that's not uncommon. A U.S. bronze medal winner turns her back on the U.S. flag during the national anthem. Gwen Berry called it disrespectful to play the anthem while she took the medal of the United States Olympic trials or at the trials. A stark contrast to the gold and silver winners who stood facing uh, the uh, the flag. Jonah Goldberg says there's um, uh, there. There go all those lucrative hammer endorsement deals. Christina Summers says, why represent the U.S. in the Olympics if you hate the U.S.? It's a very good question. Nike pulls a nearly $2 billion from China in the fourth quarter. Nike assures customers they don't use forced labor. (laughs) Yeah, right. And the strongest terms they appear to use about it is concern. Also from the story, the footwear giant uh, behind the iconic Just Do It marketing campaign said it is of China and for China for the foreseeable future. Barry Weiss says the close of a Hong Kong newspaper is a sign of trouble ahead. You may not have heard of Apple Daily. I knew of it, but only vaguely. It is, or rather it was, Hong Kong's version of the New York Post, combined with William Lloyd Garrison's The Liberator. A tabloid, yes, but also a voice for freedom. China jailed the publisher. 
Well, later, over the past week, the same forces that jailed him came for his newspaper. Hundreds of police officers raided the newsroom. They seized hard drives and laptops. They arrested five of the company's top executives and editors who stand accused of collusion with foreign forces and endangering national security. They froze the company's assets, the swashbuckling anti-communist tabloid, the symbol of Hong Kong's free press, printed its last edition on Thursday. Well, a man has been barred from competing in the Olympics against women because his testosterone levels are too high. Well, he won the women's NC2A title in the 400-meter hurdles a few years ago, shortly after competing as a man. His times as a male were mediocre. As a woman, however, well, he could beat them all. Um, uh, he wouldn't put him uh, in the top 1,000 as a male competitor against fellow males. Unemployment streaks, uh, where shrinks rather, where states cut federal benefits. And the latest from Governor DeSantis, Florida will teach the horrors of communism. The governor continues to sign bills to help redirect education. Police in Portland ID a victim of a police shooting as white to prevent Antifa riots. Because apparently when someone is shot and they happen to be Caucasian, it's not nearly as serious a problem. Uh, they're just as dead, but this is the new calculus. Uh, but they started attacking police before that news broke. Turns out it was a black officer who shot and killed the white male. So the media is sorely disappointed. It's kind of hard to keep up who's important, whose life matters, who values what. But this is, again, the new calculus. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Dan Britton and Ron Forseth. They are the co-authors of The Wisdom Challenge, Experience the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. The book is published by Broad Street Publishing. Well, Vice President Kamala Harris um, had a not-so-excellent not border adventure. She finally made it to the border, although not the area where the challenge is. She went to a rather safe place. Uh, Nate Jackson, observing the vice president's trip, said this. It's not my first trip. He was, of course, uh, quoting the vice president. Uh, the borders are snapped to a reporter in El Paso on Friday. I've been to the border many times, not as vice president and not until she served 93 days as person. Um, the president had tapped for the face of his open border crisis. Of course, given that she showed up in El Paso, which, as uh, Douglas Andrews noted, uh, in some 800 miles from where the action is, she might as well have stayed in Washington or gone to Europe. Mm. She's never been there, apparently. At least that's what she said. Uh, but hey, at least she went to Guatemala to opine about root causes. Political analyst John Daniel Davison summed up the political theater. And he writes, she visited a border patrol uh, station about nine miles from the Rio Grande, talked to some immigration activists and legal service providers, posed for press photos back at the airport, departed for Los Angeles before 1 p.m. Even the choice of El Paso was pure theatrics. Instead of going to the epicenter of the crisis on the other end of Texas in the Rio Grande Valley, the vice president reportedly chose El Paso because that's where the Trump administration first implemented its short-lived family separation policy. Politics not the harsh realities on the border was her motivation. Notably, uh, end quote, notably directly across the border from El Paso is the one of the most dangerous cities in the world. 
uh, Cuidad uh, Juarez, and I'm sure I mispronounced that, so I apologize. Any migrant with any sense at all would totally avoid crossing into the United States there. Well, as for why she avoided other border areas, the reason she did not go to the Rio Grande Valley is that that's where Biden's uh, cages are. Texas Senator Ted Cruz asserted that's where you see um, cage after cage after cage of little boys and little girls on the floor, no mats, no cots, side by side, one after the other after another, wrapped in reflective emergency blankets. That's where you see facilities with the rate of COVID positivity of 10 percent. Now, the sad thing is the media won't report on that because they don't want to reflect poorly on President Biden. Nevertheless, in the face of a crisis that has seen 500,000 migrants illegally crossing the border and elsewhere, since Harris took over as border czar, including a record setting May, we can understand why she's touchy, why she did or why did you decide the. Uh, uh, that right now was the right time to make your first trip to the border, the reporter asks. The correct answer is that Donald Trump announced his own trip to the border later this week, a trip that by virtue of its happening with highlights, um, uh, he secured the border and Team Harris-Biden had um, undone the work that he had done. Instead, she, uh, well, she said that having been there already, knowing the media wouldn't challenge her on it and for good reason, a good measure, uh, argued we inherited a tough situation. Well, the truth is, no, they hadn't. Well, the vice president did her level best to sound like this is all well according to plan. Although I said back in March I was going to come to the border, she insisted, so this is not a new plan. One person is only so much time in the day, and she had to address more important issues, like marching in that pride parade earlier this month. Uh, Harris has received due criticism from the right and the left for not visiting the border. How do you effectively address a crisis without firsthand knowledge and experience? And yet her visit there accomplished exactly nothing of substance, because the Harris-Biden goal is not to solve the crisis, but to manage it for political gain. The root cause of the immigration crisis, Biden and Harris have laid out the welcome mat. Again, Nate Jackson on the the um, not so historic visit by the vice president on Friday. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court has refused to hear a Virginia school district's appeal in a case brought by a trans-identified former high school student who sued for the right to use bathrooms and locker room facilities designed for the opposite sex. In an order list released on Monday, America's high court denied a petition for a writ of sertor well, a writ, uh, in the case of Gavin Grimm versus uh, Gloucester County School Board. Well, the, uh, the court noted in its brief order that the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, two of the court's most conservative members, would have granted the petition to hear the case. Too many people played integral roles in our success and too many people who loved me so much, Grimm wrote on Twitter Monday. I have nothing more to say, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Honored to have been part of this victory, end quote. Well, the American Civil Liberties Union, which represented Grimm, celebrated the Supreme Court allowing a legal victory at the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals last year to stand. This is the third time in recent years that the Supreme Court has allowed appeals court in support of transgender students to stand, stated Josh Block. He's the senior staff attorney with the ACLU's LGBTQ and HIV project in an emailed statement. This is an incredible victory, he went on to say. Well, in 2015, Grimm, born a female but identifying now as male, filed a lawsuit against Gloucester County Public Schools. The student claimed that policies preventing trans-identified students from using bathrooms and sex-specific changing areas that correspond with their gender identity, what they have chosen rather than their biology, violated Title IX civil rights law. 
Well, that issue was the preference of Grimm to use the boys' restrooms and locker rooms despite being biologically female. Uh, as a compromise, the high school had built three single-use gender-neutral restrooms at its uh, campus to accommodate Grimm, allowing any student to use those restrooms. Supporters of the school district's positions have argued that the school district should be able to protect their students' privacy, safety, and dignity without federal government interference. Well, in September of 2015, U.S. District Court Judge Robert Dumar, a Ronald Reagan appointee, ruled against Grimm, but that decision was overturned in April of 2016, the following year, by a three-judge Fourth Circuit panel. In a two-to-one decision, the Fourth Circuit panel concluded that federal anti-discrimination law applied to the case, with the majority arguing that Title IX requires schools to provide transgender students access to restrooms congruent with their gender identity, end quote. However, in a 5-3 decision released in August of 2016, the Supreme Court put a stay on the panel decision pending the filing and decision on an appeal. Well, after the case was remanded back to the Fourth Circuit, the appeals court sent the case back to the district court in July of 2017. Well, in August of last year, a three-judge Fourth Circuit court, uh, or a panel rather, again ruled two to one in favor of the transgender former high school student. The majority stated that they were joining a growing consensus of courts in concluding that equal protection and Title IX can protect transgender students from the school bathroom policies that prohibit them from affirming their gender. End quote. Well, the two judges who ruled in Grimm's favor were appointed by President Barack Obama. Judge Paul Niemeyer, a George Herbert Walker Bush appointee, authored a dissent to the panel decision. Niemeyer argued that the Virginia high school had reasonably provided separate restrooms for its male and female students and accommodated trans-identified students by also providing unisex restrooms that any student could use. But that, of course, was not good enough. Now, I suspect in that school district, girls who don't want boys in the locker room and restroom and boys who don't want girls in the locker room restroom might choose that single gender resource to avoid uh, their privacy being violated. Again, the Supreme Court declined to take up this transgender bathroom case, leaving in place a victory for a former high school trans student. Well, at Nellis Air Force Base uh, a week or two ago, pilots were gathered around a different kind of runway. That's because the Southern Nevada Post, home of one of the most advanced air combat programs in the service, made the controversial decision to host its first ever drag queen show. Well, to the amusement of America's enemies, some of our most skilled servicemen and women spent their Thursday night discovering the significance of drag in the LGBT community at a base club, a lesson sure to please their transgender activist in chief. Welcome to the Biden military. You can't have a Bible on the table, but you can have heels in your footlocker. An Air Force veteran posted a picture of the digital flyer over the weekend, which read, Drag you Nellis and class is in session. Um, uh, surrounded by pictures of Coco Montrese, McKenna Knight, and Alexis Mateo. I guess the airmen at Nellis have completely mastered air and ground combat so they can relax with an event that has grown men in dresses twerking. Very cool, he tweeted. But Breitbart asked for comments. Nellis officials seemed almost proud of the fact 
that they were hosting this kind of gathering. They confirmed that, yes, the 99th Air Base Wing held the event and exclaimed that uh, it was sponsored by a private organization. But the spokesperson insisted that it was important to provide an, an opportunity for attendees to learn more about the history and significance of drag performance art within the LGBT plus community. Inclusivity, the official went on, is essential to the morale, cohesion and readiness of the military. Essential to the morale, cohesion, and readiness of the military. Nellis Air Force Base is committed to providing and championing an environment that is characterized by equal opportunity, diversity, and inclusion. Again, the president dragging the military into a new era. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, we'll talk with Dan Britton and Ron Forseth. They are the co-authors of The Wisdom Challenge, Experience Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. The book is published by Broad Street Publishing. They also have other online resources, a great uh, little devotional on the book of Proverbs. That's coming up in our next couple of segments. Well, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops voted 168 to 55 the Friday before last, in favor of drafting a formal statement on the meaning of the Eucharist in the life of the church, which could be used by church bishops to deny communion to politicians who support abortion. Well, last month it was noted that the bishops planned to consider such a formal statement, and they voted overwhelmingly to do so despite the Vatican advising against such action. Well, the vote was seen as a clear rebuke of leading Catholic Democrats like the President and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who dubiously claimed to uphold the teachings of the Church while fiercely working to undermine them, particularly in promoting abortion, even to the extent of advocating taxpayer funding of abortion. Well, the vote approving the drafting of an official statement is the first step. It was reported that the new communion document isn't finalized yet, and at least two-thirds of the bishops would have to vote to adopt the language at their next gathering, slated for November. Well, predictably, Democrat lawmakers reacted with heavy condemnation, charging the bishops with weaponizing the Eucharist in order to target Democrats. Well, in an official statement from nearly 60 Democrat representatives, they urged the bishops not to move forward and deny this most holy of all sacraments, the source and the summit of the whole work of the gospel over one issue. But of course, in supporting and championing abortion, they are denying the uh, the holy sacrament to those who would otherwise enjoy the right to life. My little editorial comment. Well, Democrats didn't stop there. These lawmakers sought to dictate to the Catholic bishops how they should act and what doctrines they should teach and believe. Thank God politicians don't direct the church. No elected officials have been threatened with being denied the Eucharist as they support and have supported policies contrary to the church's teachings, the lawmakers said, including supporting the death penalty, separating migrant children from their parents, denying asylum to those seeking safety in the United States, limiting assistance for the hungry and food insecure, and denying rights and dignity to immigrants. In other words, according to these uh, signators, the bishop's failure to align church doctrine with the Democrats' uh, political agenda agenda makes them hypocrites. Whatever happened to the uh, left's often voiced separation of church and state dogma? Evidently, that myth only flows one direction. And then you consider the IRS denying um, tax-exempt status to an organization because the Bible, it argued, the IRS argued, uh, is more Republican. This is the absurd um, environment that we live in. Well, unlike the other Democrats, the president retreated behind the um, uh, behind the its personal bromide, 
Uh, Joe Biden is a strong man of faith, insisted his press secretary, Jen Psaki. As he noted just a couple of days ago, it's personal. He goes to church, as you know, nearly every weekend, she added. He doesn't see it uh, through a political prism, and we've got, uh, and we're not going to uh, to comment otherwise on the inner workings of the Catholic Church, and he'll keep attending mass, end quote. Well, poli- uh, political prisms, Biden is the same um, uh, who, as a candidate, promised to keep attacking nuns over Obamacare birth control mandates. That's because, contrary to Zaki's assertion, Democrats see everything through a political prism, including the president. Meanwhile, Pelosi, one of the biggest defenders of Catholic teaching against abortion, by their own definition, was unwilling to identify whether a 15-week-old unborn baby is, in fact, a human being. When pressed by a reporter, the speaker responded, let me just say that I'm a big supporter of Roe versus Wade, which, of course, isn't an answer to the direct question. I am a mother of five children in six years. I have some standing on this issue as to respecting a woman's right to choose to terminate the lives of their children in utero. Okay, I added that last part. Well, the Democrats promoting abortion simply refuse to acknowledge or even consider the rights and lives of Preborn children, which is exactly why these bishops voted to issue public rebuke and warning to Catholic politicians advocating for the termination of innocent life in the womb. And of course, their purview is eternal. It's not just political with one uh, political uh, session, one legislative session to another. We certainly hope it serves as a wake up call to some for the sake of the individual soul and for those who are subject to abortion. Well, as a footnote, a new poll shows that three-quarters of professing Catholics, three-quarters believe that politicians who support abortion should be denied communion. Of course, the church isn't run by polls, but nonetheless, it is a rather interesting snapshot on public opinion within the Catholic Church. I am not a member of the Catholic Church, I should mention, but I am a follower of Jesus and pro-life. Well, a study author called the findings of, uh, findings rather, a good sign for durable immunity induced by mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. Well, the recent study suggests that protection provided by the Pfizer BioNTech uh, and Moderna COVID-19 uh, vaccines may last for years. The study was published in the journal Nature, partly focused on the um, germinal center. I'm not sure what that means. The germinal center B cells in the nymph- lymph nodes of people who had received either the Pfizer BioNTech or Moderna uh, vaccines. The study uh, sample did not include people who had received the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine, which was uh, created using um, uh, adenovirus. The Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna vaccines were created using mRNA technology, which teaches cells how to um, make a protein that triggers an immune response inside the body. By examining fine needle um, aspirations, um, Aspirates, I think is the the right word, of draining lymph nodes in the study participants. The team found high activity among the GCB cells and antibody secreting plasma blasts uh, for at least 12 weeks following the second dose of the vaccine. The activity suggests the body's immune system cells were poised to churn out new antibodies to continue protecting against coronavirus. So that's all interesting. I'm not sure I understand all of it. But again, the headline, which we can probably comprehend, protection from these two vaccines, Pfizer Pfizer and Moderna, uh, may last for years, according to the study. Then another, um, this is the same, uh, the same day this was also published, uh, the booster may be needed for the Johnson & Johnson st- uh, shot, rather, 
as um, a Delta variant is spreading. Now, some infectious disease experts have already boosted with Pfizer, BioNTech, or Moderna. Infectious disease experts are weighing the need for booster shots of the Pfizer, BioNTech, or Moderna mRNA-based vaccines for Americans who received Johnson & Johnson one-dose vaccines due to the increasing prevalence of the more contagious Delta coronavirus variant. In other words, BioNTech um, and uh, Pfizer and Moderna have created a booster that may be applied to those who received the Johnson & Johnson shot. A few say that they have already done so themselves, even without published data, on whether combining two different vaccines in safe and effective or backing from U.S. health regulators Canada and some European countries are already allowing people to get two different COVID-19 shots. The debate centers on concerns over how protective the J&J shot, Johnson & Johnson shot, is against the Delta variant first detected in India and now circulating widely in many countries. The Delta, which also has been associated with more severe disease, could quickly become the dominant version of the virus in the United States. The Centers for Disease Control Director Rochelle Walensky has warned. And there's no substantial data showing how protective the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is against the new variant. However, UK studies show that two doses of either the Pfizer, BioNTech, or AstraZeneca vaccines are significantly more protective against the variant um, than uh, one. So uh, if you have the Johnson & Johnson shot, it's entirely possible that you may need a booster, and that booster will very likely have been produced by the other two big uh, big pharma companies that produce the uh, two-shot um, vaccine. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to hear from Dan Britton and Ron Forseth. The Wisdom Challenge, Experience the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. Our culture prioritizes wealth and fame, but undervalues the pursuit of wisdom. When we possess and apply wisdom, however, that's the only way we can achieve so much more for God and for ourselves and others. But we also yield greater impact. Well, Solomon was one of the greatest men in the Bible. He was the son of King David, who took the throne at 19 years old and ruled until he died at age 59. God offered Solomon whatever he wanted, and rather than choosing wealth, fame, or possessions, all of which he gained at some point, Solomon asked for wisdom, which we find in the book of Proverbs. Well, in the Wisdom Challenge, experience the life-changing power of Proverbs. My two next guests, authors Dan Britton and Ron Forseth, share simple, effective strategy for pursuing wisdom and passing it on. Well, Dan Britton serves as the chief field officer with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, an organization I love, was a member of as a college athlete, where he's been on staff since 1990. He has co-authored six books. Ron Borseth is a business strategist, mentor, and ultra uh, distance walker. He has uh, lived in many cities and countries, including Mexico, China, Hong Kong, and uh, Mongolia. He is the founding executive editor of churchleaders.com and longtime uh, general manager of SermonCentral.com, the world's largest online community of pastors. Gentlemen, it is a pleasure to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us, Georgine. 
you know, wisdom is something that's considered somewhat arcane by many in our culture today. Can we begin by just defining, uh, by defining rather, what wisdom is? We live in an information age, and we might assume that because we can consult our phone, the Oracle of Delphi, <laughs> and get answers to virtually <laughs> any question, that we are men and wisdom uh, and women who possess great wisdom. What is wisdom in the information age? Uh, you know, I think there's probably over a million di- different definitions of wisdom, <laughs> but obviously as you come to God's Word, uh, God's wisdom is different than the world's wisdom, man's wisdom. I love Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorite uh, Bible teachers. Yes. Chuck Swindoll says is, wisdom is seeing things the way God sees things. And when we have the filter and the ability to put everything through the God's eyes, God's heart, God's understanding— that, I believe, is wisdom. Ron has a different definition. He likes the wisdom. Ron? Georgine, I like to define wisdom simply as unity with God. When we've got unity with Him, we've got His mind, we've got wisdom, and when we've got disunity with Him, we fall into foolishness. So unity with God is how I define wisdom. Great definitions of wisdom, uh, which we generally, as a culture, lack. But the pursuit of wisdom is something that we are encouraged to do. Now, um, you write about uh, Solomon, and he, I should say, he writes in uh, the Proverbs uh, significant wisdom. He asked for it early on in his life, and yet he was not a perfect man himself. How would you sum up the life of Solomon as uh, reflected in his prayer for wisdom early on, and then the life that followed? I think the life of uh, uh, Solomon is a great uh, case study, right? You know, we, we, we see a guy that literally could have had anything from God. You know, in his dream, God asked him, what, what do you ask for? He literally said wisdom, then all the other things got given to him. But yet after that, he struggled, you know, to put that into action. And so, you know, one of the things that Ron and I believe is that you can have all the wisdom at your fingertips, you have all the information, godly information that you desire at your fingertips. But unless you put it into action, it is nothing. So one of the things, Georgine, we, we say in the book is, is we say wisdom minus relationship equals nothing. So wisdom plus relationships equals impact and influence. And so I think where Solomon struggled was he might have been the wisest man in the world. He just didn't take that wisdom and infuse it into relationships. That's where it kind of got sideways. The people he led, the people that he married, it just got sideways. And I believe God's wisdom always has to be in the context of relationships. Can you explain the importance of the three wisdom challenge elements? And we're talking about your book, The Wisdom Challenge, Experience the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. What are the three uh, wisdom challenge elements? Sure. Well, it says in Proverbs twice, it says that wisdom is more precious than rubies and nothing you desire compares with her. And so we have to start with the decision that we will pursue wisdom. It's so valuable, but we must pursue it. So pursue is the first element. The second element, as Dan says, he who walks with the wise becomes wise. We have to partner with others as we go through Proverbs. And then it's not something to keep to ourselves. We want to pass it on to others. So when we get done with the wisdom challenge, the next step is to do the wisdom challenge with somebody else and to challenge them to do it with somebody else. So pursue, partner, and pass it on are the three elements of the wisdom challenge. Why does God put such great value on wisdom? Well, you know, it's interesting, uh, Georgine, that twice, as Ron has referenced to, to it in Proverbs, 
it says there's nothing more valuable than wisdom. We, we like to call that the nothing promise. Like, it's, there's nothing that can top it. It's, it's a trump card. And so we believe that, that that wisdom challenge, that wisdom promise that God gives us, that if we seek after wisdom, if we ask God, as it says in James, that, hey, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. And what does he say, Georgine? He says, hmm. he will give it to you not just a little bit, but he'll give it to you generously. And so we believe as you press in and you pursue wisdom, you partner with him, you pass wisdom on, that God will actually give you double blessing in the wisdom. And really, that's where it started, Georgine, in 2012, when Ron called me and as a friend for many years said, hey, I want to go through the book of Proverbs together. And that's how the wisdom challenge began back in 2012. Oh, that's that's so incredible. And I just want to pause for a moment and consider what that scripture says. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. You think about that. We go to Google all the time when we're trying to find something out. The God of the universe has invited us into his presence to admit, you know, Lord, I, I lack wisdom. We can ask him and he promises that he will answer that request in the same way that he asked Solomon what he wanted. He's given us an invitation to ask him to give us wisdom. That is an incredible invitation. And I wonder how many of us or rather how few of us take advantage of that amazing invitation. I'll tell you, it's that decision to receive God's gift of wisdom that changes everything. Yes. Uh, if you if you go back and you look at the the life of Solomon when he did receive it, uh, he, he received uh, he received riches, he received dominion, he received knowledge. He was a botanist, he was a biologist. The Queen of Sheba came to him, and and there was not one single question she asked that he could not answer because God gave him in wisdom. So it's it's this gem that uh, we are we're wise to pursue wisdom and we're fools to neglect it. Yeah. And we have the advantage of the completed scriptures. We also have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We are essentially without excuse. Yes. Amen to that. You know, Georgine, uh, you know, it's interesting even to follow up on that is about what we ask for, right? Like, what do we as humans desire to have in our lives? Sometimes wisdom isn't something that comes to the top of our mind. You know, mm-hmm. it was interesting, uh, several years ago, a uh, survey asked 700 different people. We, we documented in our book. They said, if you could say in one word what you would want more in life, what would that be? So they, they recorded the top 10 answers, and, you know, you had happiness, number one, money, freedom, peace, joy, balance, fulfillment, confidence, stability, and passion. Which that list, Georgine, is a great list of great things that anybody would want to have, even as followers of Christ, what we want to have. But you know what's lacking? The glaring thing that's not in the top 10 list is wisdom. What they didn't say is wisdom. And so I believe the very basic thing that we're talking about, 31 chapters, the book of, book of Proverbs, Solomon's writings, is this very thing called wisdom. Yeah. Once again, we're talking about the book, The Wisdom Challenge, Experience the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. The book fits easily in your hand. It's beautifully uh, bound in leather-like material and is designed uh, as a um, as a devotional. Describe for our listeners uh, how the book is laid out. Well, actually, I need to take a break. When we come back, I'll ask you to, uh, to describe how the book is laid out and how you see it best being um, uh, put to use. Again, my guests are Dan Britton and Ron Forseth. They're the co-authors of The Wisdom Challenge, Experiencing the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with co-authors Dan Britton and Ron Forseth. They co-authored The Wisdom Challenge, Experience the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. Dan Britton serves as the Chief Field Officer with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, where he's been on staff, uh, staff rather since the 90s. Ron Forseth is a business strategist, mentor, ultra-distance walker. And I have to ask you what that is in just a moment, because I've walked a couple of marathons, but ultra-distance, I think, is something beyond that. He's the founding executive editor of churchleaders.com and longtime general manager of sermoncentral.com. So we're just delighted to have both of you with us. Now, before I ask the other question, Ron, ultra distance walker, what does that mean? Well, you probably have seen the movie Forrest Gump, and he just gets going and keeps going, and that's what I like to do. I like to walk long, long distances. I will say this. If you've completed a marathon, you're a tougher person than I am, but uh, (laughs) I like to... uh, you know, walk. I've walked uh, from Monterey Bay to Morro Bay along the Big Sur coast. I've walked from uh, the Kansas border, uh, 186 miles to the top of Pikes Peak. I just like to to walk and and spend time with God. And I uh, I'm, I'm trying to make my way now from Pikes Peak over to the Four Corners across all of Colorado. That's a, a few examples of the ultra walking that I like to do. Wow, that's that's incredible. And as I mentioned, uh, Dan is serves with the Fellowship of uh, Christian Athletes. It's an organization that really helped keep me grounded when I was an athlete at the University of Oregon. So I just love what FCA uh, does all across the uh, all across the country. Yeah, you know, Georgine, it's been amazing. In the thirty years I've been serving with FCA, you know, when I first started out, we were U.S. bordered and and just basically focused on four percent of the world's population. So back in 2013, God kind of led our leadership team to say, hey, you know, there's 96% of the world's population outside the U.S., and there's over 200 countries outside the U.S., and maybe God might be leading us to become an international ministry. And so in 2013, we took that bold step of faith, Georgine, and wouldn't you know that now we're in 106 countries outside the U.S. Wow. that God has raised up incredible ministry around the world. I'm heading uh, to Pakistan on Wednesday, just got back from Dubai and Egypt. It, God is doing amazing things outside our, our country. Oh, that is amazing and so good to hear. Thank you. Well, just before the break, I was asking uh, one or both of you to describe how the Wisdom Challenge uh, is structured, how you see uh, readers using this as a devotional, as a, you know, one sit down and read from cover to cover. Uh, describe for our listeners who don't have this volume in their hands um, how it's designed. Sure, Dan, you want to lose that? You want me to? Go, Ron, go. You're, okay. you're the guy that challenged yeah, me. Yeah. I, I, I got the call from you, and, and you said, hey, let's get through Proverbs together. And I'll take you, well, let's go. <laughs> uh, okay, so, so Georgine, we've already talked about wisdom's impact and, and how it happens in the context of relationship. That's chapter one. Mm-hmm. Uh, chapter two is wisdom's promise. Uh, more precious than rubies, nothing you desire can compare with it. Then you've got wisdom's invitation, and, and we've got this image in Proverbs repeatedly where wisdom stands on the, the top of the wall at the gates of the city and shouts, come to me and, and receive wisdom for yourself. And, and it's, it's like, uh, and if you don't, you're crazy, you know. Uh, and, then, and then you've got uh, wisdom's gift in, in chapter uh, four. And then what's very interesting is in chapter five, um, we talk about wisdom's tree. And we each have the ability to grow not just a, a tree, but a forest of trees of people 
growing in wisdom. And, and uh, the math of that's astounding because uh, what happens you do it with 12 people and those 12 people do it with 12 people, it, it, it multiplies and spreads. So that's wisdom's tree. And then there's the legacy that we leave as a result of acquiring wisdom and the legacy we live, we leave with our families and with those that are uh, in, in our lives. And then finally, uh, we talk about wisdom's journey, and it's it, it takes us through the book of Proverbs, uh, chapter by chapter, with another person. And that's the devotional element where we, we experience it with another, not just once, but over and over again, like Billy Graham, who actually went through the book of Proverbs every day for more than 70 years. That's more mm-hmm. than 840 times through the book of Proverbs. You've got uh, 915 verses in the book. You've got 15,000 words. And if you had just five insights um, coming out of each one of those words, you have 75,000 insights. That's enough for a new insight every day for hundreds of years. It's just packed. So uh, but that's how the book's laid out. Well, and the the amazing thing is you can start if you're a new believer and you're 12, or if you've been walking with the Lord for a period of time and you're in your 70s, this is a volume, because it focuses on the, uh, the wisdom found in Proverbs, that can benefit any reader. Now, I especially appreciate it at the back of the book, as you pointed out, um, there's a, a, a call to go through the book of Proverbs verse by verse, that you have in the book uh, a line segment where my verse, my insight, where people can record the wisdom that they're picking up from God's Word uh, as recorded in the Proverbs. Yeah, it's 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 really like a field manual. We we designed mm-hmm. it to be like, hey, I, I buy a book, share it with someone else, I invite them to be my Proverbs partner for the month. And actually, I just mailed out a copy today to a friend in New York that I'm going to be entering into the Wisdom Challenge next month. I can't wait. I'm just finishing up with a friend here in Kansas City that I've known for 30 years. It's been an amazing experience, and Calvin and I have reconnected recently, and given us a chance to be in God's Word, and he's already identified three guys he's going to share it with next month. So my friend in New York, I just mailed out today a copy of the Wisdom Challenge to him so he can be able to begin to go through it. But but basically, Georgine, I mean, the power is the power of wit, right? You know, Mm -hmm. before Ron called me and said, hey, I want to invite you into this challenge, I had read a proverb a day for many years. I mean, year after year after year, I just incorporate it as part of my devotion. It's one part of my devotion is spend five, six minutes, read the proverb of the day, 31 chapters, 31 days, easy to remember. But when he said, hey, I want to do it with you, that changed everything. It's like the proverb that says, iron sharpening iron, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was a double blessing as Ron and I began to go through proverbs together. And I read a chapter, he read a chapter on his own. I was texting him what God showed me. He was texting me what God showed to him. I was learning from him. He was challenged by what I was saying. We are both benefiting kind of this double blessing from God. And I believe Proverbs is meant to do with others, not just by yourself. And so that was the big breakthrough. Oh, that's just amazing. You know, I've never gone through the Proverbs with someone else. I, um, I'm i a primary caregiver for my mother who lives with my husband and me. She's 90 years old, and her vision is such that she's no longer able to read God's Word on her own. And I'm thinking, uh, you just give me the thought, I'm thinking maybe we'll take the wisdom challenge and go verse by verse uh, in our devotional together and 
just um, do do that together. And I think it's going to be a wonderful time, certainly a fellowship. It's in God's word and pursuing wisdom because that's a lifelong uh, pursuit. Um, this is a beautiful little book that I think that she and I can really benefit by. So thank you for that, uh, that uh, suggestion. Yeah, I'm smiling ear to ear, Georgine, just thinking about the month of July, how you and your mom are going to be able to connect in God's Word through this Wisdom Challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Ron, did you want to weigh in as well? Well, I, I just want to say I'm confident God's going to show up and give you guys a gem every single day, and then you can share those gems with each other. So that's that's 31 times two. That's 62 gems coming your way, and, and I'm, I'm really excited for you guys to experience that together. What a great yeah, idea. I, I'm excited, too. We've both read the Proverbs. You know, we're familiar with, you know, some of the verses, but to sit down and do that together, I think it will be much more memorable, and I think it will penetrate our hearts more deeply because we're doing that, as you've pointed out, um, in relationship. Now, where can our listeners learn more about the Wisdom Challenge? Easy. WisdomChallenge.com. WisdomChallenge.com. We have a great website that we created with resources, videos. Uh, even as Ron said earlier about the wisdom tree, you can actually go in and start your own tree and begin to have people that you did the wisdom challenge with to be able to know the impact, the legacy that you're having, the wisdom legacy that you're having. So uh, WisdomChallenge.com is the place to go to. Or you can pick up our book on any of the outlets like Amazon and Barnes & Noble and other places. Oh, excellent. I'm already thinking my mom might want to do this with some of her grandchildren and then her great-grandchildren. We can develop a wisdom tree that will give her um, an outlet for ministry within our, our small little family. Gentlemen, such a delight to talk with you today, and I appreciate uh, the book that you have written, The Wisdom Challenge, Experience the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. And I thank you so much for the time that you've taken to talk with us here today about it. Thank you. It's been very special. Thank you so much, Georgine. Excited about you and your, your mom and her, her kids and grandkids and great-grandkids going through it. That's great. <laughs> Thank you so much. God bless. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break, and we'll wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the coronavirus pandemic plunged Americans into recession. We all know that. Instead of emerging poorer, however, many came out ahead. Well, U.S. households added $13.5 trillion in wealth last year. That's according to the Federal Reserve. That's the biggest increase in records going back three decades. Now, many Americans of all stripes paid off credit card debt, saved more, and refinanced into cheaper mortgages. That challenged the conventions of previous economic downturns. In 2008, for example, U.S. households lost $8 trillion. In some ways, the singularity of the COVID-19 recession and the recovery shouldn't surprise. The scope of the pandemic was unprecedented in the modern era. So was the government's financial response? The U.S. borrowed, lent, and spent trillions of dollars to keep the economy from plunging further than it did. These actions were at the center of the unusual nature of both the recession and the recovery. They've also powered much of the stock market's unexpected boom. Rock, mark, uh, rock bottom interest rates lured more investors into stocks. Workers stuck at home tried their hand at trading and tech giants gained even more ground during the shutdown. The stock market in turn became the driver of the household wealth game, according uh, accounting rather, 
for nearly half of the total increase. Well, that has produced a lopsided distribution of the wealth gains since well-off households are more likely to own stocks. More than 70% of the increase in household wealth went to the top 20% of income earners. About a third went to the top 1%. Well, the gains were even more heavily concentrated at the top when Americans were groping, or rather were grouped by wealth instead of income. Wealth is calculated by subtracting a household's liabilities like mortgages and college debt from assets such as homes, stock market investments, and so on. Stay-at-home orders sent the economy into a free fall at the start of the pandemic, but the shock proved short. Americans with higher income jobs fared especially well. Many white-collar employees were able to work from home, and they saved money by not commuting or eating out. The government stimulus checks and expanded unemployment benefits kept afloat restaurant servers, house cleaners, others in low-income, low-wage service jobs who got laid off. Many lower-income workers came out ahead by October of last year, for example. Household checking account balances of the bottom 25% of income earners had risen roughly 50% from the year before, according to J.P. Morgan Chase Institute. But much of their wealth increase came in the form of stimulus checks and unemployment benefits, which will peter out as the economy recovers. Well, and many low uh, wage jobs are still gone. As of April 2021, jobs paying more than $60,000 had grown about 2% compared to January 2020 levels. That's according to Opportunity Insights, which is a research group based at Harvard University. Jobs paying less than $27,000 had $1,000, I should say, had fallen nearly 24%. Well, the Americans who gained most during the 2020 uh, pandemic were the ones who had much more wealth to begin with. Houses, stocks and retirement accounts, which wealthier people are more likely to own, soared in value and those boosts are likely to endure. Economists didn't initially expect things to work out this way. For example, when the pandemic first hit the U.S., stocks spiraled. Then the Fed slashed interest rates to near zero, launched an array of emergency lending programs and began large scale purchases of government debt. Investors piled into um, stocks, no longer fearing that credit uh, markets would freeze. A handful of tech giants benefited from the stay-at-home economy, carried the entire market higher. In the second half of the year, the S&P 500 notched new records on 33 occasions. Rising stock prices accounted for close to 44% of the overall growth in household wealth in 2020. Home prices, which are prone to fall during economic setbacks, They soared instead. Houses were already in short supply, but the pandemic juiced demands and made the shortage more acute. While the median sales price of an existing home uh, surpassed $300,000 last year for the first time and has continued to soar, topping at $350,000 in May. The price gains and low rates, uh, they've been a boon to homeowners, many of whom pocketed cash from their homes or saved money by refinancing in the lower interest rates. Well, the surging prices have also pushed home ownership out of reach for many low-income families and first, first-time home buyers. Economists expect uh, price growth uh, to moderate in 2021, but not for home prices to fall. Meanwhile, the aid that helped Americans get through the past 15 months has started to fade. States have begun reducing unemployment benefits. Three months have passed since the last round of stimulus checks. Measures that allowed borrowers to postpone mortgage and student loan payments are set to expire. Those who missed out on wealth creation during the pandemic will be less equipped on um, to uh, weather the next uh, major strain on the uh, on their finances. In 2020, more than a third of adults said that they might not be able to cover a sudden $400 expense in cash, according to the Fed. 
So most Americans got richer, especially uh, those at the top, but rather interesting that didn't apply to all. David Harsony uh, writes for The Daily Signal. I've been writing for about Colorado cake maker Jack Phillips' fight against cultural authoritarianism for a long time. This past March 1st noted that uh, Phillips would probably be badgered into the grave. And this week, Denver District Judge A. Bruce Johnson, or rather Jones, again found that the state could compel speech, claiming that Phillips had acted unlawfully when refusing to create a cake that celebrated the alleged gender transition of a Colorado activist. Well, when Phillips declined to participate in the wedding of David Mullins and Charlie Craig back in the summer of 2012, this was before Obergfell versus Hodges and before gay marriage was even legalized in Colorado, he made himself the target of harassment by activists and civil rights commissions that set out to destroy his business over a thought crime by courts that uh, set out to corrode religious liberty and free speech protections, and by media that either don't understand or don't value free expression anymore. Journalists have been misleading their audiences about this case for nearly a decade, so it needs to be repeated that Phillips never turned a gay couple away from his shop. He never refused to sell a gay couple his products. Mullins and Craig were free to buy anything they desired from Masterpiece Cake Shop. They weren't free, however, to force Phillips to create something that conflicted with his long-held religious beliefs. One of the most basic ideals of liberty is that we don't coerce individuals to say things or refrain from saying things in ways that violate their conscience. Yet, in 2012, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission set about bankrupting Phillips by asserting that his refusal to bake a cake was driven by a deep-seated personal animosity toward gay customers rather than by his Christian faith. Well, now, even if it's... um, Uh, This had been the case. The commissioners could divine that that Jack's intentions, there's no addendum to the First Amendment that says we must spare the feelings of certain people uh, in these situations. Freedom of religion and religion has uh, been used to justify all kinds of discrimination throughout history, says his opponents. Um, Setting aside Rice's fatuous um, argument, the fact that is that Phillips didn't hurt anyone and he extended his service to everyone. It was Rice who intended to hurt people. Her words and the actions of the commission were a warning to Christian businesses that a failure to take orders from a culturally approved class of customers could mean destruction of your livelihood. And once again, Mr. Phillips faces another case by refusing to bake a cake that that, uh, reflects a message that he cannot embrace. The saga continues. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office. Hope you'll join us here tomorrow for The Georgine Rice Show. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.